Happy New Year. And more importantly, happy anniversary, Monique. Happy anniversary? What do you mean? This is our two-year anniversary of no. doing our Nursum podcast. Well, isn't that exciting? And what did you buy me? Nothing. I know. Well, you brought the wine, so I guess that's probably good enough. So, happy 2017. And I guess we need to apologize. We are a little late with our podcast, but you're sure we are sure that you understand how busy life can be, and we will make every effort in future to stay on track. Is that um, our New Year's revolution? I think, yeah, our revolution. Yeah, hopefully. I'm not very good at resolutions, but we're going to try anyways. Um, but as merge nurses, you are, as you all understand, very busy. So let's get to, let's get right down to business, shall we? Yes. This okay. is Landon. This is Monique. And uh, as, as we said, happy 2017. So many so of our why, ideas. What are we going to talk about today yeah, and I know. why? Well, many of our ideas for our podcast come from real life situations and or nurses that we've had the privilege to meet and or work with. Recently, we were teaching an EPIC course and we were having a discussion about clotting, anticoagulants and massive transfusion, which, of course, ends up being a discussion about the confusion of the complex clotting cascade. And so Landon and I were challenged, challenged to see if we could explain it in more simple terms. This was a listener who from Surrey. Yeah, I know. Surrey, British Columbia. Thanks a lot. Yes. Who challenged, challenged us to do a podcast on the clotting cascade. I know. To make it simple to and understanding. Simple. I know. So we're going to hopefully do that. So here goes. So talking about simple, let's just kind of start with something very simple. So blood clotting or coagulation is a vital process. Our body can both make clots and break them down once they've done their job. Of course, a large clot inside a blood vessel is dangerous because it can block blood flow in the vessel. Internal clots that form without any obvious injury or clots that travel through blood vessels are also dangerous. Coagulation of blood is a complex process and it also involves many steps. Proteins are made by our liver and sent into the bloodstream and that's an essential part of the process. Maybe I shouldn't be talking about wine though, you know, I hope my liver is doing okay. And we're talking about clotting. Oh my God, you might bleed to death. I know. Anyway, I'll try not to fall. These proteins actually circulate around the body in our blood in case of injury. An external or an internal injury is the trigger that activates those proteins and sets that whole blood clotting or homeostasis in homeostasis in motion. Hemostasis. Oh my gosh, I wrote homeostasis. I'm sorry, that was a spelling error on my part. So hemostasis is the process in which bleeding is stopped, and it involves three steps. Vasoconstriction, activation of platelets, and the formation of a blood clot, which really is where the clotting cascade happens. So initially, when there's a damage directly to the blood vessel, there is vasoconstriction. So the damaged blood vessels will vasoconstrict to reduce the blood flow. The second step is um, platelet activation. So the activated platelets or the proteins stick to each other and to the collagen fibers in the broken walls of the blood vessels and they form a platelet plug that temporarily blocks blood flow. What's the most important word there? Temporarily. Temporarily. I think I said that clearly, didn't I? You did. I just wanted to stress that because I'm going to get on a soapbox. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this platelet plug is quite weak. And it may be removed by flowing blood unless it is strengthened by a blood clot, which is really the part of the premise of the permissive hypotension. We don't want to knock off that first 
plug or the first clot. Did it's, you want to say something? I, I need to get on yes, a soapbox. Yes, I know. Okay. Because th- that that platelet plug is formed by decreased blood flow. Yeah. And we kind of do a thing in, in first aid to decrease blood flow called direct pressure. So this, this is where that direct pressure is really starting to help. Yeah. Unfortunately, first aiders save more lives than nurses in this regard because <laughs> a first aider will stick something on there and they will hold direct pressure until the cows come home or the limb falls off and save a life. Yeah. Nurses, not so good at that. We like to look at things and look again and again and one more time just to make sure it's still bleeding. And I'm sure you've all done it or you know someone who's done it because, of course, none of our listeners have ever done this. No, of course not. You put some pressure on and then you have a little peak. Yeah. I.e. you tear the platelet plug off. Yeah. And it's still bleeding. And so then you put it back on and then you tear the platelet plug off and then you put it back... And you can see how a little peak is never going to stop the bleeding. Exactly. This is the first part of the clotting cascade. If you don't allow it to happen, you the can't. rest of the fire halls with their little trucks of clotting factors don't know to come to the scene of the emergency. <laughs> exactly. Because you keep taking the emergency away. I know. You've kind of disrupted it, haven't you? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's my soapbox. Okay. Put pressure on. Yes. Leave the initial dressing on. Exactly. If you need more, add more on top. Don't take the first one away. Exactly. And there so- we go. What we're saying is it temporarily blocks a blood flow and it creates this platelet plug and the platelet plug is very weak. These platelets also release actually other chemicals that attract other platelets, which also stimulate further vasoconstriction, which is what? It's the fire alarm. Yes, the fire. fire Exactly. Now, this adhesion is actually strengthened further by something called von Willebrand's factor. And that helps to form additional links between the platelets and the collagen. Again, all of this is a temporary measure that occurs while the clotting cascade is triggered in order to strengthen that platelet plug into a clot. This is also why ASA is such an important drug in MIs. Aspirin irreversibly inhibits this platelet aggregation for the life of the platelet. Therefore, A single dose of aspirin prolongs bleeding time and doesn't allow for the next step in the process of making a more solid clot, which would not be desirable in an MI. So that's why it's really, really good for us to do that. Okay. But flip side. Yeah. It is undesirable as well in people you don't want to bleed. Exactly. So your cardiac patients who take an aspirin every day and come in with a cut. Yes. There you go. Exactly. No ability to call the fire trucks. Exactly. So a little bit off the topic, you may have heard of Von Willebrand's disease. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But it's actually one of the most common bleeding disorders. And it's a genetic disorder. Both men and women can have this disease. And it's caused by this missing or defective Von Willebrand factor, which helps form that platelet plug. And now you know which part of hemostasis is affected when you have Von Willebrand's disease. Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting. That's just an off the side. Okay, back to hemostasis and the final step, the formation of a blood clot, really the clotting cascade. So why don't you take that over So there's a reason we call it a cascade. Mm -hmm. And it's because the coagulation process acts like a cascading event or or a domino effect. Mm -hmm. One event triggers the next and that next event can't happen if the one before it didn't. If there's any interruption or malfunction along the cascade, it prevents the clot from forming and dissolving right so maybe we should start by reminding ourselves that coagulation factors are naturally occurring in the body but they remain inactive until activated by the preceding factor or substance of some sort 
Yeah. They're, They're kind of like, um, you know, the first runner up that's just waiting, right? For yeah. something to happen and then they can step in. Like Miss Congenia. Yes, exactly. <laughs> They're just waiting in the wings. They're waiting for their call. That's right. Waiting for their moment to shine. So there are 13 clotting factors, which we typically write down r- numbered with Roman numerals. They also have a common name. The factors are numbered according to the order in which they were discovered, not the order in which they react, because that would make too much sense. (laughs) Some of the common ones that you might recognize, factor one, Mm -hmm. which we don't typically call that, we call it fibrinogen. Factor two, which we don't typically call, is prothrombin. We'd say that more often. Factor three, again, one we don't use, but thromboplastin is a word you might use um many of them are likely ones you've never heard before like factor seven yeah proconvertin we are usually which we call factor seven, factor seven. Yeah. so you can see how it makes no sense yeah factor nine which we all often say factor nine yeah instead it's actually called the christmas, christmas factor. factor is that weird i bet they discovered it on christmas maybe <laughs> anyway each of these 13 clotting factors have an inactivated form that is converted into an activated form through the clotting cascade and the whole point of this clotting cascade is to activate the clotting factors. Right. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about those. Many of the, we'll talk about how to remember which ones do yeah, what. Yeah, in a minute. Because Monique found easy ways to do this, of I course. I know. <laughs> Many of the clotting disorders that we see are deficiencies of some of those factors. For example, factor five Leiden is a mutation of factor five. This mutation can increase a patient's chance of developing abnormal blood cells or thrombophilia. Problems with factor eight and factor nine deficiencies are known as hemophilia A and B. So yeah. again, you could say factor nine deficiency. You could say hemophilia B. You could <laughs> yeah, no. say pro-com blah. Oh, yeah. Christmas factor deficiency. <laughs> and hence why this seems so complicated, complicated if we could just pick one. Yeah. Uh, rare clotting factor deficiencies are bleeding disorders in which one of the other clotting factors, yeah. one, two, five, yada, 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 is yeah. missing or not working properly. Less is known about these disorders because they are diagnosed very rarely. And many of them have only been discovered in the last 40 years. And I, I really want to take a moment now and, and ask you, Manit, what it was like being present for the for the discovery of all of these clotting factors 40 years ago. Yeah, it's I, it's been such an important part of my life as being part of the discovery. of these. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. I'm thinking there's a black and white picture of you all standing around Probably. a table discovering clotting factors. You know, kind of like the signing of the Constitution or Probably. something. You were all standing yeah, there discovering exactly. clotting With factors. With my nursing cap on. Absolutely. And yes, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you for... Bringing that to everyone's attention. Yeah. <sighs> it is. <laughs> it's being very rude as usual. It is important though when doing a medical history to know whether patients obviously have any clotting yeah. disorders, particularly when considering risk factors for DVTs, MI strokes, and, and, and also actual bleeding injuries. Yeah, and, exactly. And m- most of the world actually uses the Canadian triage and acuity scale Definitely in Canada, we're kind mm-hmm. of strongly encouraged by our government, meaning we have to yeah. use it. And clotting disorder is one of the main um, things that will triage you up in yes, many conditions, absolutely. is the, yeah. the knowledge of a clotting disorder. So uh, this isn't totally irrelevant to your practice. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Yeah, it is. Back to clotting factors. Clotting factors are mostly made in the liver. Some of them are released from damaged tissue cells. Some are made in the bone and absorbed through the lining of the small intestine. Some are made in the lining of blood vessels. So it's important that clotting is reliant on a healthy liver 
and and healthy other organs as well yeah right but typically because most of them are made in the liver yeah that is why when you are looking at people doing um, coagulation tests mm-hmm. typically the liver yeah functions are included in yeah, that absolutely. and much like when you have someone you do liver function tests on them you will often do a ptt inr yeah with it exactly yeah because they're all related. Yeah. So even if you're giving somebody like an anticoagulant because they have a DVT or something like that, you should do liver function tests. We need tests. to do liver function tests because it all kind of starts with the liver. Exactly. Yeah. So let's get back to the clotting cascade. So there are two pathways, the intrinsic pathway and the extrinsic pathway. And they meet at a certain point to become the common pathway. So it looks like a big Y. Yeah, it does. Which is where actually the common pathway is actually where the clot actually becomes a lot stronger. The intrinsic pathway is activated by damage directly to the blood vessels. The extrinsic pathway is activated by many things. So damage to the blood vessel, tissue damage outside of the blood vessel, hypoxia, sepsis, malignancy, inflammation. I've read that a good way to remember this is to think of the intrinsic pathway as the injury pathway. Because they both start with I. I, exactly. And the external pathway as the everything pathway. Because they both start with... X. E. E. Stop it. I think of the factors as being really the stepping stones along that pathway. So when Ladda was talking about all those clotting factors, it's one step along that pathway. Now, these two pathways don't run parallel to each other. In fact, the extrinsic pathway is more dominant. It acts as the catalyst that kickstarts the coagulation process. The intrinsic pathway is both activated by the extrinsic pathway or it can be actually activated independently. Both of these pathways meet at factor 10, which is the start of the common pathway. And of course, 10 is in an X in Roman numerals, so you just think of X marking the spot. Isn't that clever? X marks the spot of the start of the common Common pathway. pathway. So if you're really, really nerdy, like Landon, and you want to remember which factor those clotting factors fits into which pathway we're going to see if Landon can make it a little easier for us. I just need to put my pocket protector <laughs> on with my pens. Hold on. Exactly. My calculator watch is ready to go. Exactly. And your glasses with the little my tape in the middle. My horn glasses, yes. which are taped in the middle. Yes, of course. Absolutely. Go right ahead. Now. Photos to follow. <laughs> All right. Remember, the goal is to get to factor 10, which is the start of the common pathway, because from there we make strong clots. Exactly. So... The intrinsic pathway is factor 7 and factor Mm 3, which adds up to 10. Yay! The extrinsic pathway is a little harder to remember. But perhaps those of you who are vocabulary freaks or English majors, you can remember that the extrinsic pathway is the tenet of hematology. Oh, wow. So the word tenet, T-E-N-E-T. Right. If you don't know what it means, means the principle or the objective. So it's the principle of hematology. Right. The tenet of right. hematology is the extrinsic pathway. Tenet is spelt T-E-N-E-T. So the T stands for 12, E for 11, N for 9, E for 8, and T. Second T for 10. So Which 12, 11, 9, 8, and then Ten. get to X marks the spot. So if you're like trying to think of which order those all go in. They start high and go low. Exactly. Because that doesn't make sense. And they end at 10. So it's 12, 11, 9, 8, and then 10. 10. I know. I know. Maybe we should start a little campaign to renumber the clotting factors. I know. It would be much easier, wouldn't it? Go with letters. I know. Exactly. Uh, So you may not think this is important for you to remember at the bedside. 
But understand what activates and where these clotting factors are activated helps to determine how researchers look at developing protocols for things such as massive transfusion, antifibrinolytic therapy, and what diagnostic studies may help us in our treatment plans. So you're probably never going to stand at the bedside and go, oh no, the extrinsic pathway has factor nine and we're not giving the right factor. Yeah. It just practically, it's not going to happen. Right. But it's good to be smart a little bit about these things. So mm -hmm. for example, the PTINR and PTT tests evaluate the function of the extrinsic and intrinsic pathways. So the PTINR evaluates the extrinsic pathway and the PTT evaluates the intrinsic pathway collectively they're part of the coagulation panel right so they evaluate both of them yeah there are many other coagulation tests available to evaluate different components of clot formation we don't typically use those in no. a hi i'm here to see an emergency physician exactly. or nurse practitioner yeah it's typically ptt inr you would yeah order yeah okay you will need both of those to evaluate the common, common. pathway yeah exactly yeah okay so you may think well who cares well let's think about two drugs that we often see in practice heparin and Coumadin. Yeah, we kind of use those, don't we? Yeah, yeah. aka rat poison. <laughs> exactly. So heparin primarily works by inactivating the intrinsic pathway. Right. It blocks the formation of a clot from the damage to the vessel. Right. Which is why it is not, it's not a fibrinolytic. It's not right. a clot buster. No. It is an anticoagulant, which means it stops a clot from, from forming. forming. Or yeah. one that's already there. Because you may think, well, if I have a person with a DVT, the clot's already formed. It'll stop it from getting bigger. Exactly. And allow the body's natural process to break it down. Exactly. But at least it's not getting bigger. So with heparin, because it works on the intrinsic pathway, we are more interested in the PTT results. Right. Because those measure the intrinsic, intrinsic pathway. pathway. Yeah. Coumadin's a little more complex, and anyone who's been around for more than about 10 minutes yeah. realizes that Coumadin's not a very easy drug to manage. But Coumadin works on several factors in all three pathways. However, the effect that Coumadin has on the extrinsic pathway eventually leads to anticoagulation, mm -hmm. which is why when we determine the dosing of Coumadin or whether the patient's had too much, we likely only need to look at the PT results, or INR, which I'll talk about in a second. Okay. Now, we are not suggesting that you would only order one test or the other because both of them are part of the panel so yeah. maybe down the road so yeah. we do get patients who are on long-term coumadin therapy exactly. and they only they go to the lab and only get their INR measured exactly yeah we're talking emergency department here yeah. don't think oh that's a direct injury to the vessel so I'm only going to measure the intrinsic pathway no no yeah. no order keep both it simple them. order yeah. both some of you might be wondering about PT INR and what is INR so for your information only, because we do have listeners from all over the world. Yes, who exactly. You, you might measure different things. Mm -hmm. INR stands for International Normalized Ratio. And what it is, is it's a function of the PT, the PT or prothrombin right. time. The INR came about because depending on which methodologies were used at different laboratories, PT results would vary from lab to lab. The INR is essentially a mathematical way of leveling the playing field. It okay. standardizes all your PT results so that no matter where you did the test or how you did the test, if your INR is 2, yeah. we know that it would be 2 somewhere else. The right. PTs might all be a little different depending on methodology, but then they standardize it to an INR. the metric system okay. called exactly. the INR, the International Normalized Ratio. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, I haven't practiced much overseas, but... The fact that it says international normalized ratio, I'm hoping that most of our <laughs> listeners know what an INR is. Yeah. And maybe in your country, you don't do a PT. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. Anyway, INR, extrinsic pathway. 
All right, back to the clotting cascade. Both the extrinsic pathway and intrinsic pathways have now been activated and we're not at the common pathway, we're which now, is at... Right? I'm sorry, that was my spelling. We oh, are now. We are now, sorry, at the common pathway, Yeah. which is at factor... 10. 10. X marks the X spot. X marks the spot. The two key players in the common pathway are thrombin and fibrin. Fibrin is the most important part of the clotting cascade because fibrin is what traps the platelets and is therefore clotting factor... Number, number one. one i know so we're three quarters of the way through i know and, and we now we're get at to factor one, one. <laughs> i know thrombin is the second most important part of the clotting cascade because it activates just about everything else mm -hmm. and it's therefore clotting factor number two two i know it doesn't make any sense because we're now seven eighths down the clotting <laughs> exactly. cascade these two together create a stronger and longer lasting clot so i'm going to make it super simple now <laughs> Intrinsic pathway, yeah. 7 plus 3 equals 10. Yeah. Extrinsic pathway, tenant, 12, 11, 9, 8, ten. gets you to 10. Either way, you get mm -hmm. to 10. You then have 1 and 2, which makes a clot. Or fibrin and thrombin. Exactly. You, so. We totally simplified the clotting cascade. I hope so. Take that, nurse from Surrey. I yes. hope you understand. Understand it a little bit more. A little better, because we sure learned it. I know. One last important thing, though, to consider in the clotting cascade is factor four, which is actually calcium. And it's actually a very important factor in the clotting cascade. There are four factors along the clotting cascade that actually require calcium in order for them to become activated. They're also known as the vitamin K-dependent clotting factors. Now, okay, they are factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, which are factors found in all pathways. So you can appreciate if calcium is needed to activate these factors in all three pathways, that the clotting process would be severely affected without calcium. It is for this reason that citrate is added to stored blood bags. It binds to the calcium, halting the clotting process within the blood in the bag. It is also why we should consider administering calcium to a patient requiring a massive blood transfusion because we're act, act, oh sorry we are effectively giving a bleeding patient blood that won't clot because the calcium in the bagged blood is exactly. still bound to the citrate when you put it in the body exactly so it's it's not effective exactly yeah so remember when we are talking about coumadin earlier and we said that it was a little bit more complicated so actually, Coumadin acts on these vitamin K-dependent clotting factors. So Coumadin has structural components that mimic vitamin K. When exposed to Coumadin, these four factors will mistakenly bond with Coumadin instead of vitamin K, which will prevent the factors from activating and therefore leads to anticoagulation, which is why when you have a patient who's on Coumadin and has a bleeding event or has an elevated PT, we consider administering vitamin K. It's all making sense, isn't it? It is. Now, you may be wondering where vitamin K fits into the clotting cascade. Remember that in the clotting process, there are chemicals that are also released in the clotting process. Way at the beginning, we talked about that. So vitamin K is an essential chemical in the blood clotting process. So try not to confuse yourself, but it's kind of interesting to, when you start thinking about, well, why do I give vitamin K? It's interesting to kind of add that little piece in. Which, which is one of our big missions doing yeah. this podcast is nurses knowing... Why are you doing it? Why you're doing stuff you've just always done. Yes. Like there is an experienced nurse out, emerge nurse out there who wouldn't know that giving vitamin K... Is a good to thing. ...to someone who has a bleeding problem is just what we do. But yeah. But now you kind of know why. Exactly, because it's part of that clotting cascade. All right. Well, we can't 
solely talk about the coagulation cascade without talking about fibrinolysis or breaking down the clot. Mm -hmm. While the ability of a blood clot to clot is essential to our survival, too much clotting will kill us just as quickly as bleeding out will. A major component of the coagulation cascade is the built-in a built-in system, like a yeah. feedback loop, right? The negative feedback loop. Yeah, exactly. That allows for clots to be broken down once they are formed. Otherwise, we would end up with PV or PV, PE, <laughs> DVTs all over the place. Yeah. You'd, you know, you'd start with one clot, the, all the fire alarms would go off, and exactly. you'd just be one big clot. Exactly. So when a blood clot has served its function and the tissue underneath the clot has been repaired, it needs to be removed. The, blood, the body has anti-clotting mechanisms to deal with these problems. We're not going to talk about fibrinolysis in depth. Yeah. Just understand that it does exist and is necessary. Yeah. If you have a patient still in your emergency department mm-hmm. when they come to the part of breaking down yeah. the clot that they repaired their injury with, mm-hmm. they've been in your department way too long, too long. And you need some patient flow advice. Exactly. Like really, if they're there for three weeks and their clot is, you know. Still there. The scab has turned into skin and now the clot's breaking down, that's a problem. Yeah. For your interest about how knowledge of the clotting cascade is affecting the way we treat trauma patients and other patients requiring massive transfusion, there's a new type of blood testing called ROTAM or rotational thromboelastometry. And really, you could picture rotational elastometry. It's like, wow, we stretch this thing and see how well it stretches. Yep, that's what they do. Uh, It's a test for hemostasis in whole blood. The results are placed on a graph of a reaction curve which shows when the clot forms or dissolves, and it plots out clotting time, formation time, firmness, and lysis of the clot. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if you're having trouble envisioning that, just go on Google and type in Rotem. Lots of the larger centers, this is a trendy thing right now, and you'll see some Rotem graphs. Exactly. Really, the, the goal of Rotem is to tell us what what part of the clotting cascade is, is affected right not working yeah, right exactly. now so if they're yeah. still bleeding is it that they don't have enough calcium to help with it yeah. is it the vitamin k part is it and and again it gets very scientifically complicated but in the end this is a bedside test yeah now it may be done in your lab but it's intended like draw the blood send it to the lab a few minutes later you've got some results kind of exactly. model it takes longer than a couple minutes but and it tells you this is what the patient needs. So eventually gone will be the days of let's just keep pouring blood into this person that's pouring out. And occasionally we throw some plasma and some platelets and mm-hmm. this will actually tell you, no, this is what you need to give them right now. Exactly. They are Where lacking is this part of the clotting, clotting cascade, to cascade catch cause. or the plasma or the platelets. Absolutely. Kind of yeah. So it's trendy. It's new. It's again, there's probably only 10 or so facilities in our country that are really using this and Again, they're studying it, and eventually you will see this maybe rolling in an out. emergency department near you. Exactly. Well, all right. We're not sure if we have simplified the clotting cascade, but hope that it's given you yet another way to understand it. I do want to give a shout out to a blog that I discovered that really helped us in preparing for this podcast. It's called Bloggin' for Your Noggin. Bloggin' for Your Noggin. I know. It was really extremely helpful, and she has some wonderful uh, blogs, of, and she really simplifies quite a few different things. So I really thank her for helping me to understand it a little bit better and then to speak to all of you about that. Landon and I really enjoyed the blog. So in summary, hemiostasis are, involves three steps, vasoconstriction, platelet activation leading to a platelet plug, and formation of a clot via the three pathways of the clotting cascade. 
Two, the intrinsic pathway is the injury pathway, and the extrinsic pathway is the everything pathway. And both of these pathways lead to the common pathway where the clot becomes strong. X marks, X marks the, the spot. spot. The body has a built-in system to dissolve a clot once it is no longer needed. Understanding the clotting cascade allows us to study medication effects, diagnostic tests to treat patients who are bleeding, who have bleeding or clotting disorders, and also how to treat them. So it's kind of important. Wow. There we go. Clotting cascade made bloody easy. Bloody easy. Bloody easy. I'm Landon. And I'm Monique. Happy anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. See you later. See you next month. Bye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursem.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursemCast and also find us on Facebook at NursemPodcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.